And you know the Russian saying, ответ как вопрос. You get an answer like the question. So if you ask softball easy questions, you get... Softball answers. Softball <laughs> cheap answers. So it is what it is. Hey listeners, it's Nick and I'm here with Misha. Today we had the distinct pleasure of talking to Michael Kaufman, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. Today we've discussed the lessons learned from Ukrainian counteroffensive, how political goals in this conflict don't always match military outcomes, and Russia's security posture towards NATO. On sustaining a war, countries are remarkably resilient. Ukraine is a large country with a sizable population, but victory or defeat are political outcomes. But what follows 2024 is very difficult to predict, in part because both the United States and a number of other European countries are going to have elections. And the elections matter, that's why we have them. Michael, welcome to the show. It's nice to have uh, not only a great expert, but a fellow podcaster with us. Could we start with your thoughts about whether Ukraine can succeed on the battlefield in the long run, even? Because many experts have underestimated Russia's capabilities, not only to defend, but for offensive purposes. And the balance of power might be even shifting somewhat right now. Okay, well, regarding expert estimations of Russian military performance, I actually think that after getting a fair bit of how Russia was going to execute the initial invasion wrong, for reasons that the community has been quite introspective about, the assessments in the run-up to the Ukrainian offensive this summer, I think were largely accurate. That is, the analysts who had been following the war had written well in advance, maybe not all, but many, that a, an offensive against a prepared defense would be difficult, it would be costly, and that expectations should be moderated regarding what the possible outcome might be. And so there were very few surprises, I think, amongst uh, military analysts, although folks like myself and others approached the offensive with a degree of cautious optimism because the Russian military appeared to be in a somewhat poor state after their own failed winter offensive this year. The reason I'm saying this is it's useful to have background and context for what actually took place this year. So with that in mind, you know, success on the battlefield is pretty difficult to predict. What's obvious at this point and had been, I think, for many who have been following this war is that it's going to be a long war. Wars of this type typically do go on much longer than people hope or expect. Major conventional wars, if they don't end relatively quickly, tend to go on for several years. And you can say technically that this war has already gone on for nine years because in practice we've had a continuation war to the initial 2014 invasion. It's going to be a challenging year, undoubtedly probably more challenging for Ukraine. I'm happy to get into that conversation with you. But the short answer to your question is, yes, Ukraine still has the opportunity to reestablish military advantage on the battlefield. What happens on the battlefield is not the only thing that matters, right? In assessing war, the tactical level is only one dimension. It obviously is very important, but victory or defeat are political outcomes driven in large part, but not in entirety by military developments. Talking about Ukraine's capabilities to wage 
two, maybe three more years of, of kind of this level of warfare, which I think has struck many people in the West, especially as kind of not meeting their expectations for what war is supposed to be. I, I think that many people still kind of remember the Iraq war TV and things like that and shock and awe. And so kind of don't have a frame of reference, at least for lay people. But for their capabilities to wage kind of two or three more years of this kind of grinding attritional warfare, especially in an environment where there's maybe less support coming from the West, what what's their kind of physical capability to achieve their maximalist goals that have been set forward by by the Ukrainian government? Well, first, on sustaining a war, countries are remarkably resilient. Ukraine is a large country with a sizable population a fair amount of their own resources, industrial capacity, and I would say a fairly innovative and adaptive society that has made up in a host of areas for a lack of state capacity, wherever that's been the case. And so my view of it, just based on experience, not just in this war, but, but studying war at large, is you should never rule countries and societies out. And you'll be surprised how, how long they can sustain a war, especially if it's an existential war or there's really no, no alternative proposition, right? Because when you ask that question, you also have to ask as opposed to what? It's not like Russia's interested in negotiations. In fact, the Russians are very confident right now and think that most of the material advantages are on their side. Objectively, that is true. I think there are good prospects for Ukraine if the right decisions are made. And the right changes are made as well in Western policies. And here I'm speaking writ large, the Western policies and practice is not a thing. We're talking about a host of different countries with their own policies towards this war. But nonetheless, uh, there are a lot, plenty of opportunities to set the conditions, use it as a build year to try to retake a military advantage in 2025. But at this point, you're principally looking at the long game in this war and thinking about the long term. We are past the phase of this war where much of the thinking and strategy, I would say, was oriented towards short-termism. Maybe the fall offense of last year would have been very successful. There would have been a cascade collapse of Russian forces. That It was successful, but the latter part did not come to pass. Maybe the offense of this summer would deal with strategic defeat, and this would impose a new reality on the Russian military and political establishment. And that also, unfortunately, didn't come to pass. But that's not an unexpected outcome. You cannot look at uh, prolonged conventional war and just go off of one particular offense of a one particular operation. And you also have to be very cautious in extrapolating for where you are. Wars proceed in phases. They have attritional phases. They have phases of relative stalemate where both sides try to break out and attain advantage. But eventually somebody does. So if, let's say folks like World Wars as historical analogies, right? That's a common reference point for I don't because World Wars by definition are non- anomalous events. That's why we call them World Wars, right? You know, maybe a better analogy for war might be the Iran-Iraq war as an example for this one. Not a particularly optimistic one, given the extent of attrition, how long that war went on. To answer to your question, how long could two countries stay in a war like that? The answer is for quite some time. But if you were looking at World War One and you're writing from the situation on the Western Front in 1916, you might be rather pessimistic about still in the situation. You would not have foreseen the events that would follow, right? Or the same maybe in the early part of World War II, 1941 and earlier in 1942. Yeah, so the, the, reason, the reason I use an example is because they're typically short shrift for other, for other people when they try to reach back to history. The bottom line is that it's difficult to predict what Western support is going to look like after 2024. It's even become increasingly difficult to see what it's going to look like for 2024 in the United States. 
And Ukraine's military effort and prospects do depend significantly on external material assistance, right? Both military and financial. And so a fair bit hinges on that. I think that's, that's fair to say. But there isn't too much that one can add in that category, right? Because we are currently in a period without a lot of clarity. I think that we'll be able, or at least the resource will be secured for Ukraine in the coming year. But what follows 2024 is very difficult to predict, in part because both the United States and a number of other European countries are going to have elections. And the elections matter. That's why we have them. You've mentioned that victory and defeat are political outcomes, and so far, both sides of this conflict have defined their victory and defeat in pretty maximalist terms. Do you think that they can redefine those political goals over time? Uh, maybe freezing lines of control, at least temporarily, would be beneficial, let's say, to Ukraine more than to Russia. Ukraine could prepare better for the next invasion that happened in 2022, sort of have this period where the West would create a better military, while Russia would be more and more isolated on the global stage? So, this is a good question. You know, victory and defeat does not exist as sort of one zero. At the end of the day, the way we think about this, I think historically, is there are several factors that go into assessing victory and defeat. But, yes, the truth is that both sides seem to tie their their political goals, at least their minimal political objectives, very closely to territorial control. For Russia, the minimal war aim seems to be the capture and occupation of all the Donbass as a base minimal war aim. And for Ukraine, the minimal war aim is very much also the maximal war aim, which is the liberation of Ukrainian territory to the borders that existed in 1991, right? That's the official stated position, and it has not changed. And so there is no present overlap between these two positions that one can see. Regarding a freezing a line or a ceasefire, here's something you need to consider. The first is in the near term, a ceasefire would actually strongly favor Russia rather than Ukraine, because Russia is in a period of defense, industrial mobilization and rearmament. And those results don't depend on any sort of, let's say, or don't heavily depend on any sort of external political support. Whereas on the Ukrainian side, much depends on sustained Western assistance, which had often been slow or laggard or difficult to coordinate during the period of war. And so your expectation that it might actually somehow be better, at least it's not your expectation, but it might be the expectation of listeners, that things might be better and easier when Western countries believe that the conflict has frozen or has been uh, largely localized and handled. I would disagree. Actually, it becomes far more uncertain whether the political will and interest will be there on the part of Western countries. So I think in the near term, any freezing of the conflict, which I find to be illusory to begin with, because even to freeze it, you would first have, have to have a degree of localization. Right now, this is a war that involves the territory of Ukraine and Russia writ large. It's not just a war along a certain particular line of control. So I think we're pretty far from it. And I don't believe the freezing of the conflict will currently be favorable to Ukraine. But... I don't think that this notional proposition has much likelihood in practice because there's no interest on the Russian side to negotiate. And if there was, one should be quite wary of it. I don't say this because I'm so so eager to have the war continue, but parties usually agree to ceasefires when there's a mutually hurting stalemate and they no longer see a proposition 
to how they can achieve their political aims via use of force. When a party that has the military advantages and retains offensive war aims begins to negotiate and is interested in a ceasefire, you should be suspicious. And there was a lot of talk, especially I, I feel like at the beginning of the war, that this Western support, especially that Ukraine kind of could function as a, a way for NATO to reimagine how to fight a, a near peer enemy and practice tactics and, and new technologies on the battlefield. But there's very little discussion, I feel like, about the Russians learning or the Russian army learning and changing. It's it's here and there, but they're fighting this war a bit differently than they were at the beginning. And how are they learning and changing? Because, of course, that makes a ceasefire even more dangerous if they can learn and come back even stronger and, and better equipped, both on the tactics and the strategy side and military industrially. Sure. So so both sides uh, learn and evolve as the war progresses, right? And the Ukrainian military has proven to be more innovative, more adaptive, quicker to ad- adapt or change to the conditions. But the Russian military has not been a significant laggard. Uh, I think it has been fairly consistently misrepresented since 2022 as an organization somehow unable to learn or to change. And I've seen anecdotes to that effect, but the to me, the field of military analysis is not, is not based on a composition of a few anecdotes. And uh, what I have seen and what I think Ukrainians have seen, I'm speaking now from some experience, having been there four times over the past year and near the front during those visits, is that the Russian military does learn and does adapt. Now, the initial invasion, the initial operation, we know was not reflective of the way the Russian military trains and organized to fight. It was an attempt at a decapitation strike. And the assumption that the military operation was going to be complementary to an extensive intelligence operation and driven by the political assumptions rather than rational use of force, let's say, the way a illogical military uh, operation would unfold. And that's what was very surprising for analysts like myself, who at first couldn't understand what they were looking at. The military operation looked very little the way Russian forces talk about uh, military operations, had previously conducted military operations when we saw them fight in 1415 or in Syria or even trained and organized to fight. But let's put that aside. It's just, I think, a useful a useful background on that subject. After that, they quickly began regressing to the mean, starting in April of 2022, if employing combined arms formations more effectively, leveraging a significant advantage in fires, improving and evolving the way they were using air power, strike assets, what have you, but showed a lot of, a lot of issues and deficits and, and quite a few problems with the fundamentals. I won't go too far down this rabbit hole because this, this would be a rather long conversation. But since then, I think we have seen evolution of Russian force structure and the way forces are, are employed. The Russian military has shown itself to be much more effective on the defense than on the offense. Let's be honest, it is much easier to conduct a defensive operation on land warfare than to conduct an offensive one. That part's true. But they've shown that despite a significant degree of degradation in the force, that's another factor people need to keep in mind. There is a widely held but erroneous view that militaries as they enter a war should show that they're adapting and learning lessons and you should be seeing a progressive evolution. But this is not the case because the best part of your force gets attritioned early on in the war. You begin to lose force quality. You begin to lose leadership. You begin to lose the people that had any sort of professional military education, prior experience training, right? Your army over time becomes mobilized. Hence, neither the Ukrainian military or the Russian military today look the way they did when this war began. 
those armies, whatever your perception of them and practice are now gone, and these forces have evolved significantly. This can lead to periods of significant degradation where even though your military is learning and adapting, your force quality is so low, it is not able to execute certain types of operation. You cannot employ military power scale. And a lot of the forces learning and relearning the same lessons over and over again. So what you'll often see is parts of the military repeating the same mistakes over and over again for a particular reason. These people are new, they're inexperienced, they have new leadership, and they're relearning those lessons again and again as war. I hope this makes sense. And on a very large frontage, the, the line of contact, probably the front line you're looking at just alone, is close to a thousand kilometers. This is a large scale conventional war. I want to emphasize that point. You're going to see pockets of adaptation, pockets of innovation, and you're going to see also cases of poor leadership. You're going to see repeated mistakes made by new units, by inadequate or incompetent officers and what have you. You'll see the range of it, right, in, in the Russian military. In general, what I will say is the war shown is that the Russian military is not good at rewarding initiative. That has been a long known problem in Russian military culture and also Soviet military culture. That legacy persisted today. However, once having suffered losses, having been dealt a significant blow, it does begin to adapt and it does begin to develop counters. So that part is true. It's not good at taking anticipatory action. It's not good at taking preventive action that is anticipating uh, what's going to happen, but it does begin to adapt and change once losses are suffered. Sorry, it's a bit of a long explanation, but I think it's a good, but I think it's a good topic to, to explore. Going into 2024, President Zelensky ordered his uh, military to start preparing defense lines beyond the current line of control. Do you think that there is some worry among Ukrainian leadership and if it's warranted that Russia may advance farther than it is right now and break through Marienka, which has already took the ruins of it, and also in Avdiivka, take, take that over and somehow push Ukrainians even farther after that? I mean, the short answer is yes, clearly. And uh, fortification and entrenchment is a very effective strategy. And it's one that I very much think Ukraine should pursue and should have been pursuing. First, it's a very useful hedge, especially when your opponent will have military advantages in the coming year. Second, it's not just for the purpose of defending. It is for the purpose of allowing you to change your force management strategy and to reconstitute your military because... And effective prepared defense can allow you to pull your best forces off of the front line. It alleviates them from having to hold long stretches of the front. You can deploy second echelon or reserve forces to hold these defensive lines now. So you can begin to rotate your brigades out, reconstitute them. It reduces the resources required to hold this frontage, meaning the amount of artillery ammunition you might need can substantially download those requirements. And it gives you much greater freedom of action. So sometimes when folks think prepared defense, oh, no, this means that the military is no longer advancing and no longer has the initiative. To some extent, that's true. But they miss that strategy is about choices, right? And you have to choose not to do certain things at certain times in order to retain the advantage and to seize the initiative down the line. And so there are a lot of advantages to pursuing a defensive strategy and entrenching beyond just the, the most obvious, which is it's easier to mount the defense with defenses. 
Do you think that there might be a fear in Ukrainian leadership that that building defenses farther back from the front lines is is maybe admitting that the the fight is not going well? Because we 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 all know that there's been significant discussion both in Western media and in the Ukrainian example that that you know everybody needs to be on the same side and and kind of speaking the same language about the war and and that that is important, especially with a population that's facing another winter of possi- possibly being shelled and electricity being disrupted. Do you think that, that maybe that also plays a role in their, in their decision-making? I mean, look, I'm not a local analyst, so I'm not going to attempt to divine what Ukrainian leadership thinks. What I will say is Zyansky has very clearly said that they are now in a different phase of the war or a different period. His most recent, I think, associate press interview and announced the pursuit of not defensive strategy, but the need for fortification and entrenchments. And as you remember, some weeks back, uh, Zeluzhin, the commander-in-chief, laid clear that the offensive and practice had culminated and that they were now not maybe in the general stalemate, but at least still made it for the time period. I don't think there's much, uh, there's much left to add to his interview and his much longer article that he also published in The Economist. When he said stalemate, he made it clear that he was thinking in the context of World War One, the Western Front, in case folks believed that, you know, the, the context wasn't clear. It was quite clear in his interview. And I don't think you can describe the picture uh, any more directly than that. So I believe that now it is true that, that Zelensky, the president, disagreed with him publicly and said that the situation isn't stalemate. But shortly thereafter, began to publicly announce what clearly are the outlines of a defensive strategy and admitting that the the period of the war where they are has now changed right so so i i myself i'm i'm watching it just as you are unfold but i i think the the trajectory is quite clear and now that uh, counteroffensive has been deemed failed basically uh could you draw some lessons from it on the ukrainian side what could be done better could ukraine pursue some other strategies rather than just going on the southern front near tokmak was there opportunity near kirsen as we see right now near krinki could that be exploited potentially in the future so on lessons learned i think that there's a lot that's been done already i think that we've we've seen quite a bit that we need to change in terms of training and and how best to equip Ukrainian forces, both in the training regiment, the time required, what have you, types of equipment that will be necessary as enablers to enable a breaching operation, and the sort of advantages that Ukraine would have to establish, both in, in fires and in some of the notional capability fights like drones, electronic warfare, and what have you. And Zolution raises these, and they need to attain air advantage. He discusses air superiority, but it's actually quite clear from, I think, the thinking on the Ukrainian side, the air superiority is not about traditional conventional platforms like F-16 attaining air superiority, and that this is very unlikely, but actually deriving air advantage from innovative widespread use of drone systems and, and things like FPVs, first-person view, strike drones, right? So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there, and it takes time to put yourself in a position and to set the conditions for another successful op- uh, military operation. Yeah, the offensive was unsuccessful. It could have succeeded. I do not subscribe to, in some areas, the newly adopted theology that was just a fundamental mismatch of sort of ends and means, which implies that it could have been successful. It could have, right? A lot of things are a function of military strategy, planning, and execution, right? Execution accounts for a great deal in war. Now, it is true that you can, you can execute everything well and still not attain success 
right? That happens. And the task for the offense is much harder than the task for the defense when you're the one running the offensive. But, but nonetheless, I think these, these are all factors to consider. And there's many areas where, where I see the opportunity to do better, but I don't see the resources being there right now for major offensive operation in 2024. Thinking about the counteroffensive, how could it, how could it have succeeded? Because now, kind of looking back, it it people have have widely kind of started to look at it and be like, well, maybe the training was was inherently uh, bad. But what, how could it have succeeded in general? Well, I'm going to give you a disappointing answer. I have flogged this subject extensively over the course of several articles and podcasts. Uh, with my colleague Rob Lee and Warren the Rocks, and so have my fellow colleagues and researchers at Lucy in the UK, Jack Watling, uh, Nick Reynolds, and others. I strongly recommend their work on this question because we've we've pursued it, to, I think, not exhaustively, but but extensively the past several months. And I, I I fear it will take a very long time to unpack. But the short answer is that I think there was a fair amount that we in the in the United States and other Western countries. And also Ukraine could have done differently. And I don't know that we've necessarily led the, the offensive to be successful, right? We are not talking in superficial counterfactuals, but they might have had a greater likelihood of success. But we should also be wary that hindsight is twenty twenty, right? It's very easy to Monday morning quarterback an offensive operation. Um, and this is one area where I, where I tend to look a little skeptically whenever I see historians attempting to do my job in contemporary military analysis to say, it's much easier to know uh, to do this work when you know how the war ends and you have access to archives from both sides and it happened 70 years ago. It's a lot harder when it's happening in progress. There's analysis right now by some pundits claiming that Russia is really not that strong and we shouldn't be afraid of Russia. Instead, we should refocus our attention on China and PLA and that Russia can't even take a village or a small town in Ukraine. So we shouldn't really worry about Russia. Do you think that Russia could not sustain a war against a NATO country like Poland, for instance, or against the NATO alliance as a whole, even if we take out the United States? Because I remember once you've mentioned that NATO can withstand the war with Russia for seven days a week, but then there will be the next week. And that's when attrition will start uh, kicking in. I'm not sure I said that. You know, sometimes I say things, actually quite a bit of times I say things. What's interesting what people end up hearing because they're not always the same. What I will say is first, military power cannot be assessed abstractly. It requires a context to express itself and is very much driven by scenarios. So when you're dealing in hypotheticals, you have to quickly become specific when you're asking a question like this. A war with whom, over what, where, with who involved, and so on and so forth, what time period. In defense strategy and planning, typically the minimal timeline we look at is 10 years out. That may seem quite uh, far down the line for some folks, but just so you know, 10 years comes very quickly when you're doing defense planning. So I think generally first it's safe to say that uh, NATO retains very significant qualitative and quantitative advantage over Russia and the Russian military. And on that, I have no doubt and, and never had. And it was never really debatable. And I, and I always was puzzled by the superficial straw man that 
that Russia was the second most powerful military in the world. That's something Russians said, but it's not anything I'd ever heard anyone say in the United States and the United States government. That's not how people viewed the Russian military. Only from the standpoint of strategic nuclear weapons, because the United States and Russia still hold, I believe, more than 90% of the world's deployed nuclear weapons. And only in that very, very narrow category would that have been a fair assessment. You know, from the standpoint of pundits, I don't like to comment on other people's comments because the only thing worse than punditry is metapunditry, and it's not my profession. What I will say is that there was a secular shift in U.S. strategy visible quite a few years, seeing the Indo-Pacific and China as the principal area of competition, with China as the main competitor in that area. Nothing has changed in that regard, and there's been no shift in that debate. And so this is not a recent occurrence. It's actually been a, a more fundamental shift in U.S. outlooks and a very significant one, given how long the U.S. had been oriented towards seeing Europe and European security as more the primary theater of U.S. interests, probably for much, very much of the U.S. Uh, history as a nation. And so that debate was settled quite some time ago. Perhaps the only debate that really exists is how much of a threat Russia is in Europe and to what extent are European countries able to manage that threat on their own? And my answer is they are not. And this war proves it very effectively because, or at least to me, at least based on what I've seen, I would question the capacity for European collective action without the United States. It is clear that European militaries without the U.S. playing a lead role as integrator and enabler would struggle to scale any kind of military operation. Part of that is these forces have evolved over the course of many, many decades to operate as part of the NATO alliance, right? And not to fight individually. So there's, there's a construct, there's a constructive or, or at least a practical reason for why things look the way they do. But it's important to understand that and, and to understand that while in Excel spreadsheets, European militaries may, may add up in uh, a certain way, that does not represent the reality. The complexity involved in scaling military operations is one that I think the, means that the United States has to continue to play a leading role in European security. And folks who think that Europeans can handle this or handle Russia on their own, that's where we overinterpret Russian failures in Ukraine and torque the conversation on the Russian military to seeing them as something more like four feet tall is also unhelpful because it, 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 it masks the, the, the reality, at least, at least as, as I see it. To, to go back maybe to the beginning and, and wrap things up nicely, what do you think is an area of the conflict that maybe is underrepresented in the media that people don't pay attention to, the, the place where maybe we should look at and derive some lessons? Yeah, well, I, I guess the nature of the question is sort of what what's interesting to the observer, right? That you can derive lessons from almost anything. Although I always caution people, be careful in deriving lessons because context matters. Uh, not everything's a lesson. Some things, when you're when you're doing field work or when you're following a war, they're just observations. They're things that happen in that war for a particular reason, but they're not necessarily generalizable lessons that you can apply to a conversation on warfare writ large or the changing character of war. So you have to be a little cautious. I would say that one thing that people don't pay attention to or don't do enough is they don't pursue sufficiently the question of what have we learned about the war, what are the things we're learning about the war that are not true? Because when you're following wars, you often, as an analyst, observe pretty big input-output problems, right? For example, 
Russian logistics are very poor, but also Russians are firing 20,000 artillery shells per day for much of 2022. How do we reconcile those two things at the same time, right? Or how better, how do we better integrate intangibles and soft factors in our analysis of military performance? And this war yields pretty mixed lessons, both about how we think about them as to what's and we're effective in integrating them in any sort of rigorous analysis beyond notionalism, but also how much should we weigh them versus the tangibles, the, the things that we can potentially count and, and, and approach at, at least easily with greater empiricism. So I don't have a single answer for you as to what I think is particularly interesting. But to me, what's, what's probably the most interesting is how much quickly gets learned about a war that isn't true and how much effort it takes to figure out what really happened and why. That the typical time lag from when events happen to when you're able to figure out what what happened with some degree of confidence, at least a modicum of confidence, is probably at least, you know, four to six months. And even then, it's it's best a rough cut. And and also how how different the the role of analysts or researchers looks from that of the media. The media tends to get, you know, to some extent the first cut at history, but how how different these approaches really do really work, even though they're they're complementary functions. So I'm sorry, it's a bit it's a, it's a bit of a non-answer, but then but I but I fear if I start listing all the things that I find particularly interesting, I'll have I'll have a I'll have a hard time selecting from them. We'll be here for for the next hour. Well, thank you very much for joining us and for this enlightening conversation. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's happy to join you. Thanks for the invitation. Slavic Conviction is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 